welcome to episode 41 of Tall Poppy. I'm your host, leadership advocate, Tathra Strait. Ever wonder why our attempts to influence company values and corporate cultures don't work, or how to create an environment where people can bring all themselves to work? Today I interview Josie McLean, and a key question we explore is how to create cultures that are based on trust. If you've listened in the past, you know this is a big theme for us, and central to this emergent leadership approach. Are you interested in how we liberate the potential that is stuck in old ways of thinking about how we work with human beings? We learn about the role of fear, the limiting nature of control, how to create environments conducive to change, and new ways to think about change management and people management. Be prepared to check your own mental models for what leadership and change mean to you. To shift from individual to collective capacity, from fear and control to trust and liberation. And there's a point in the conversation where we mention an illustration, and it's a link in the show notes as a PDF. And you can look while you listen, or you can just listen to the concepts. Check it out. I'd like to welcome Josie McLean to Tall Poppy. Welcome, Josie. Thank you, Tethra. It's lovely to be speaking with you again. And so let's start with where in the world are you? Um, so I'm sitting in my office in Adelaide. Um, I work out of a co-working space called Watso, and it's a converted church, and I have a little roost in the top of it. So I'm right up the top of the church, and I've got wooden panels around me that are part of the roof and some glass around me as well that lets the light in. And so it's physically, that's where I am. <laughs> That sounds really cool. So you and I have known each other for quite a few years, and we met through the Be the Change initiative that was connected to the Pachamama Alliance's symposium, Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream. Mm. And uh, you also um, did some coaching with me a while back as well, which I really appreciated and made a real difference to me. And in the last few years, you've been focusing more on your thesis, and that's completing your PhD. And I'm, I'm quite interested in, in uh, talking a bit about that. But is there anything that you wanted to say about um, the connection that you and I have? Um, just that I've really enjoyed it. And I'm always fascinated by what you're doing and your inquisitiveness, Tathra. Mm. So I'm looking forward to this conversation to find out what mm. I know that I don't know that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. Cool. And I know this is a topic that people who uh, do PhDs love being asked. Can you tell us what the topic of your thesis was? Um, and I'm saying that in a very tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, yeah. Well, we usually we just watch people glaze over um, when you start talking about a thesis. But the, the topic or the, the title of my thesis is Embedding Sustainability into Organisational DNA. A story of complexity. Uh, and that's what it was. I was re really interested in how could we make this change within organisations to help them reap the benefits of being more sustainable so that we might also reap the benefits of them being more sustainable, not just in an environmental sense, but how could they actually sustain people and planet? Mm, I love it. So I'm going to focus on the change piece, at least initially, because that's something that I've been quite fascinated with. And that actually comes from my own sustainability background in, in working with organizations um, and largely tenants of office towers in Melbourne. When I was a sustainability consultant, we would often go in and do it basically implement recycling programs. Mm. And quite often there would be a bit of a 
well, we would go in and do sort of a bit of education. This is what, you know, here's the plan. We're going to remove the rubbish bins from under your desks. We're going to replace those with recycling bins. If you do have rubbish, which tends to be about 10% of your waste stream, you will need to actually physically get up and go to the, the kitchen or the tea point or wherever it is. And, and often that was quite difficult for people. Like some mm. people are like, oh yeah, that's easy. No worries. If they were already recycling at home, but for people who weren't, they were like, what do you mean I have to get up? Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forgetting that they also get up to go to the loo, to go to the printer back in the day when we printed everything and that kind of stuff. And, and especially when there were managers who were like, yeah, you can take away everyone else's bins, but just leave mine. Yeah. And that never worked well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I became quite fascinated with what inspires people to change and what doesn't and what are the sort of factors. And I remember one time in conversation with you, you said, you can't make people change. You can only create an environment that invites it. And that was revelationary for me. I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> can you say a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I, I think it points to how we think about change even. Um, we often talk about change, particularly in organisations. You know, we talk about leaders driving change or we talk about mm-hmm. rolling out a change. We talk about it as if it's something you can touch, like it's something you can project manage. And I, I don't think change is that. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, I think change is a process of life. Um, my observation is that the only thing that the only things that don't change and I may have to uh, rethink this after I say it, but the only things that don't change are, are dead. Um, mm, and, mm, and, yeah, and so, well, so I was so, expecting you to say like the whole death and taxes thing, but um, <laughs> it's things that we can't avoid. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, if things that don't change do d- just die. Yeah, and they die or they are dead. And um, mm. and so I think we've been sucked into thinking about change as something that we can do to others, that we can physically touch and that we can project manage. And I don't mm. believe that's so. I, I believe it's actually quality of life and it comes from inside. You know, if we want to change something outside of us, um, our natural human tendency is to go and try to change others and to change the environment around us without recognising that first we must change within because that's mm. where change comes from. Yeah, We have to change within and when we change the way we respond to those things, they change in response to our change. There's a Rumi quote that I'm quite inspired by and, and listeners that have been listening for a while, will have this won't be a new thing for them, but the quote that says, yesterday I was clever and I wanted to change the world, today I am wise and I am changing myself. That was a real <laughs> pivotal thing for me in terms of how I engaged with the world because I used to be very much about pushing change and wanting people to care about the environment and then realizing that I couldn't make them do that and that the best use of my energy was actually to to change myself and change how I responded to people who, how I perceived, didn't care about the environment. Yeah, and it, um, no, I love that Rumi quote too. Now, um, but it, mm. and and it fits really comfortably alongside the Gandhi quote to be the change you want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we read yeah. things like that, but we we gloss over them really quickly. Mm. I don't know about you, but I've one of the things in this sort of self reflective, I guess, exploration as I realised I was being very. 
I guess kind of, I'll say preachy, a bit of a proselytizer, like a greeny, uh, not quite the green police, but I was, um, when I think of it now, I think, um, I, I'm horrified that, like, of course I wasn't inspiring anybody. I was, I was being really righteous. <clears throat> and so I, I thought I was being the change that I wanted to see in the world, but, but from a different perspective, I can see that that was not inspiring anybody. Yeah, yeah. Through the process of doing this doctorate, I, I had the opportunity to meet Dexter Dunphy. Um, oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. And um, I spent a, a few dinners with him chatting Ooh. over change and how it happens. And one of the things that um, really struck me that he said was, it's not what you know, it's who you are. Oh, love it. Like he, he was a big inspiration for the, the start of my business. And um, I remember learning that he was, he's also a poet. And when I hear that, I was yeah. like, ah, you can hear the poet in that. Yeah. I, I hear you completely on the um, proselytizing front because mm. I went there too. And um, I think we do that. And I, I think it's very natural and human to do that about the things we care about. But also like you and like you, <laughs> um, mm. I, I had that experience of, um, well, this isn't working out the way I intended so well. Mm. <laughs> um, what, is, what is it about this that needs to change? Mm. And as I started thinking about that, I, I realised it was me. Mm. Wow. And I, I don't hold myself up as any... Um, any saint or angel in that area, I'm I'm completely a work in progress and there are many mm. demons of my own that I um, encounter and face as I work with people in the change space. Um, so I, I'm not pretending to be perfect in any way. Don't, don't take me the wrong way. Well, and I think that's, I mean, for me in, in facilitating change, that, that vulnerability and, and being able to acknowledge our, you know, imperfection is a big part of creating that that space for people to be vulnerable to, for for people to to face their own demons and and realize the the resistance we have to to change so yeah it, it uh, doesn't surprise me that that's to, to hear you say that because I, I also have a tremendous amount of respect for you and the and the approach that you take and so yeah i'm i'm really interested to hear more about what it was that you explored in your thesis and what it was that you found the first thing I explored that's not in the thesis really but a really important part of the journey to mention here, I think, was that my intention was to find out how I could change CEOs so that mm -hmm. they could all be like Ray Anderson. <laughs> Great. I'd love yeah. to have more of people like him. He was such an inspiration. It was my first meeting with Dexter Dunphy where I explained that to him and he looked at mm. me for a while and then he burst out laughing. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. And he said, so you want to play at being God? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yes, please. <laughs> um, but the more I explored that, the more I recognised that actually – it's not just leaders that need to change. In fact, many leaders um, try to change their organisations and fail and mm. um, many leaders try to change society and fail mm. and that's because they're dealing with a culture that is existing mm. within their organisations and, and also within their societies. So there's two layers of culture that are um, not independent of leadership and so leadership tries to influence the culture but the culture really strongly influences the leader 
So mm-hmm. who's following who, you know, and how do you, how do you uh, intervene in a way that enables that relationship to change and evolve or the, mm. the outcomes of that relationship to be different? So that's really what I started to explore in my thesis. It became a look at leadership, how do we need to lead, what might that look like, but also how can we actually influence that culture and specifically how can we influence the culture in a way so that it nurtures people and planet so it becomes, as uh, Dexter Dunphy and his colleagues um, started talking about, a sustaining organisation, not just sustainable in an environmental sense but actually one that recognises its interdependence with the world around it, its interdependence with the community it's embedded in with the natural environment that it's embedded in. So what, what's coming to mind is um, Reinventing Organisations by Frederick Laloux yeah. and that whole sort of green um, stage. And like I feel like there's, there are some organisations, but it just feels like, uh, you know, quite rare or do you know what I mean yeah yeah um I think there are organizations and they're really hard to find um Mm -hmm. but what I found here was one CEO who was really interested in exploring how his organization could make that shift and and I think it does link with um the teal organizations um uh, which is underpinned by a um an understanding of the stages of development and integral theory as well Mm -hmm. so um I didn't set out to explore the relationship between what I was doing and the stages of development, but over eight years I started to see that maybe that's another facet of this. Hmm. There are some people who are more open to it and more able to think in more complex ways, Um, and maybe that is the stages of development. I I rubbed up against it a little bit, but I didn't explore it intensively. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about what you discovered through the process. I discovered a lot about myself. Um, mm. I thought that I was, um, because of the type of work I do, um, coaching, facilitating, I thought that I already knew a fair bit about sitting in ambiguity. Mm. As the saying from Game of Thrones go, <laughs> I knew nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> um, I learned a lot about experiencing ambiguity because of the approach that I took to this. I actually designed a systemic action research methodology of my own because I couldn't find one that would meet my needs and it was one that acknowledged that I was a part of the system, not separate from it, and uh, and I was looking at this through the lens of um, complexity or the paradigm of complexity or the paradigm of living systems. So I won't go into the detail of what took me there but that paradigm is one where you might be able to influence the system but you absolutely can't control it and so I was just interacting with it and trying to use some principles from my understanding of how complex systems work in order to work out how to interpret what I was seeing and also what to do next so that was one element of learning was just about myself Mm. and that was a huge element a second element was really the importance of allowing people to bring their whole selves to work. Wow, I love it. So we explored um, a process of envisioning um, that Donella Meadows inspired within me and that really touched people's deep personal values and opened up a discussion within the organisation around are we allowed to bring our personal values to work? 
And so within the sustainability field, there's often a tendency to go looking for the values of sustainability. What I discovered, I think, is that you don't need to impose those values. They're already there. Mm. They're actually there in the people. And it makes really good sense when you think about it that people inherently know the environment which is going to sustain them because we have evolved over millennia. So why would we not know anything about the environment that's going to sustain us? Why would that not be built in? Mm. Um, And as I talk to people in the organisation, we explored this idea of how do they really want to experience work, what's important Mm. about experiencing work. They highlighted values that are important to them that are actually, I think, and we won't know this for a very long time, will we, that, that appear to be sustainable and sustaining in themselves. They're actually within us. The, the trick is to create an environment in which they are liberated. So what were some of those values? Oh, they were really, you know, if I asked you, they're the, they're the same things that you'd want. What would you want? In terms of work environment? or Yeah, if I said, how do you really want to experience your work? I'd want autonomy, but I'd also want to be supported. And, and the, I guess that, that interconnectedness piece, like an awareness of the impact that someone's decisions um, have on me and um, um, respect around that. Yep. And these are all the things that everyone else wants. So mm. the other thing that I discovered was a remarkable similarity and convergence on the things that everyone wants. Mm. Everyone thinks that they've got to massage people into different organisational values. They're already sitting there. Mm. All you've got to do is enable people to connect to them. Uh, the other thing that was really interesting was that people started talking about the natural environment that they were in as well. Mm. Um, so that didn't need to be imposed either. They already want greenery in yeah. their offices. They natural want to be able to see outside. They want a nice natural environment mm-hmm. around their office. They want clean air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have <laughs> to impose these things. They already want it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I guess the the major one of the major learnings was how can we create an organisational human environment that actually liberates these things instead of keeping them chained up in the corner. Mm. So do you have answers for that as far as... I mean, uh, uh, yes, yes, I do. Because, <laughs> I mean, when I, when I think of that question, I'm kind of like, well, yeah. Anyways, so, so what were the answers that you discovered? <laughs> Part of it goes back to the way we think as managers and leaders, we should behave and the way we've learned to think about management and mm-hmm. managing other people. So when you think about management, um, most people start talk, talking about scheduling, organising, controlling things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually those structures we build around to manage, organise, schedule and control things that get in the way of people being liberated. Mm. So how can we reframe managing people in a way that sets them up for success and sets the organisation up for success? And I think a lot of that work is already sitting there and, you know, we've had lots of manager-as-coach programs and leader-as-coach programs within organisations teaching these skills to managers. But 
I think there's also some other expectations and this does link into the work of redefining organisations, the teal organisations. I've forgotten the gentleman's name. Frederick Lelou. Lelou, yeah. Um, this does link into his work. How can we actually trust people mm-hmm. instead of feeling like we have to control them? Mm, yeah. um, how do we create management systems of trust I think that's all wrapped up in this too so this is a heavy cultural piece in a sense that organizations have by and large developed their structure from uh, a military concept initially and then the industrial you know um, production lines of mass industrial production what do they need to look like as we move forward Mm. into a world where we want to liberate everything that everyone's got that they can bring to work Uh, their creativity, their passion, their joy, their values, what's right, what's wrong, what's ethical in this situation. Um, How can we actually liberate that instead of them having what I see as perhaps two jobs when they come to work? The first is to fulfil the the role that's written down on a little job description for them, Mm -hmm. um, which in no way captures the complexity of what they do. And the second one is to protect their arse. (laughs) Um, So the more time they spend on the second, the less time they've got for the first. Mm. So if we can create an environment in which they don't have to be scared and protect their ass, then they've got more energy to actually do what they were employed to do. So when they're less defensive and sort of moving out of that military war analogy mentality, that's when trust comes in? And is, I wonder if that's where the um, vulnerability piece comes as well, because to move from control to trust requires courage, requires vulnerability. The takeaway for me in reading Reinventing Organizations was, cool, really excited about helping organizations move towards this, but most people aren't there yet. They're not interested in moving from control to trust, or they they are in name, but when it comes to actually doing the personal work to to do that bit of a different story. What's your take on it? I think that most people don't realise how self-limiting control is. Mm. You can control to get some outcomes, but what have you given up to get those outcomes? The cost of control. The cost of control is creativity, Mm. emergence, um, you know, all, all the joyful, powerful forces of nature that you've given up in order to control this little bit over here. So you can control to a certain bit, but you lose the opportunity to actually engage with much more powerful natural forces, I think. Mm. Wow, I love that. So what do you think it's going to take for us to move from that control paradigm to the trust paradigm? Well, what I discovered in this research, it doesn't really answer your question. What will it take to to move from control to trust? Um, You know, LaRue's book would suggest that it's a stages of development thing, that um, if you've got a CEO that is at a stage of development that's strategist or higher, teal or higher, then they are people who will understand that they can trust the system to manage itself. I guess I'm curious though, like if, if they're at that level, awesome. But how do, how do we get them there? Is it, is it a matter? Takes of- us back to, mm-hmm. takes us back to Dexter Duffy's comment, you know, so now you want to play golf? <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
which is the entire cycle that I went through, you know. The thing that, that stands out for me, I'm very interested in your thoughts on this, coming from a sustainability background, seeing the writing on the wall, seeing whether it's climate change or environmental destruction or population pressures, whatever it is, you know, how we're using technology and not using technology. There are very real survival and not survival implications for how we be in the world. And if we don't move from tr- from control to trust in time, we might not make it. That's the logic in my head in this particular worldview. I recognize that there are other ways of looking at it, but when I look at it through that lens, uh, yes, I want to play God. Yes, I want to move this along. I want to to influence that that shift from defensive, controlling, military style e- ethos to life-sustaining, trusting human and, you know, people and planet longevity and sustainability. So so the – and, and I'm not a, a stages of development expert, so um, you might want to inquire into this with someone who is. Um, but from my understanding of it, um, as I've touched on it over the last 10 years or so, it's about creating an environment for that – development of existing stages to be full and healthy and also the natural progression to the next stage. Mm. Um, so you can, and, and there are leadership programs, and, and I've been involved in one here in Adelaide, that has been specifically designed to create such an environment. What it brings to mind is that I, I used to talk about the diffusion of innovation model as a way to help yeah. people engaging in environmental campaigns to realize that spending time on the laggards isn't your best use of energy, that it's the early adopters mm-hmm. and the early majority that you want to to focus on. And, and that's kind of what I hear in what you're saying, is that it's better to to nurture those who are at that level of development. And and honestly, I mean, I love that model and I don't think it's as linear I mean, it'd be easy and nice if it was just that simple and linear, but I don't think it necessarily is. But, but yeah, at the, at the same time, being able to, to nurture and support that, the development for people who are already interested in doing that. And, and honestly, I guess that, that's for me what, what doing this podcast is about as well in terms of highlighting those voices. And this is a very challenging thought, I think, Tathra, but um, increasingly lately I've been wondering from systems thinking we know that the behaviour of the system is a result of its structure. Mm. And when you start thinking about people, the behaviour of the system that we're seeing is dependent upon the structure of us as people, not just our consciousness but also our physical structure. Mm. And maybe we're not designed as a species to actually be so numerous on the the earth. Mm. Um, Maybe we are designed to work in niches smaller niches rather than a global niche and yeah. um, that we don't have the underlying system structure to actually see the world in the way that we would love everyone else to see and operate in the world maybe physically that's not going to happen maybe consciously it's not going to happen mm. wow a lot to think about i know i know that's a um, kind of a brutal question but it's one that started occurring to me as i get deeper into systems thinking. Mm, absolutely and so seeing myself as a system. Mm, yeah. And look, I think it's important to ask those questions and especially looking at it from, from a systems perspective. What I'd love to shift into is the 
graphic that you sent me that's looking at looking at it from the top so the organizational context envisioning personal value um, passionate small groups threshold concepts letting go to let come I'll create a link to this in the show notes but I wonder if there's um, anything that you could speak to I mean I can I can see very much in our conversation that a lot of this has has stuff that we've been referring to especially the like you say the day-to-day conversations with others that challenge underlying mental worldviews or so seeds that just that to me is is a big answer right there but can you say a little bit more about what where this came from and and how you find it useful so what i was trying to explore in my research was what is the nature of the change and how does it happen what's the dynamic of it and this little model i think starts to explain the nature of the change and there's another one that explains the dynamic of it so this is just about the nature of the change and what I discovered, um, and as I said at the beginning, it's only one way, I'm sure of that, but one way that worked actually was to view this as an emergent change rather than one that was being imposed. Oh, I love it. This diagram tries to capture what's important about creating an environment for that emergent change to occur. Oh, fantastic. So if I can just go to the change that I saw in the organisation as um, some evidence for this shift in worldview having occurred in the Mm organisation, I document the way in which the organisation did its strategic plan, Mm. moving from a very traditional, highly structured, highly detailed, nearly 50 pages of strategic plan with very segregated goals and strategies. I mean, they're all meant to work together, but it's the normal cascading down into the individual work plan structure. Mm-hmm. To after we had finished this process, the strategic plan was one page with um, six values around the outside and some pictures describing what it would look like wow. when it was in place. That's dramatic. And my understanding is that projects would be put in the middle of that those six values and Uh, the question would be asked, how does this project contribute towards a greater expression of these values within within the community in which we are? Wow. Um, So so a very different way of thinking about it. And for me, um, as I was exploring in this research, a shift from a more Newtonian or mechanistic view of the world, which uh, lives very lively in our organisations mm-hmm. and the way we manage them, um, to an appreciation of complexity and living systems and the interconnectedness of everything. What they recognised was they can't control any outcomes mm. at all, but they can work more and more towards a vision that has some values embedded in it. So having said that, this this model that you're looking at um, tries to summarise what are the conditions that need to be in place for us to uh, promote, nurture that sort of shift. And the first thing it talks about is the organisational context. Mm -hmm. And I think you do need a CEO that's holding the space um, for that type of shift to occur Mm. or you need someone with a high degree of of authority in the executive Mm. team. Um, I think either would work. In this case, it was the CEO And there were a couple of senior managers who were also holding the space for it. But what we found out about was the role of fear in the organisation too. Uh, And we touched on this a little bit earlier. You know, unintentionally organisations create fear when they uh, restructure, when they lay people off, 
um, when they put performance review plans in place, yeah. you know, um, and people bring fear to work with them mm. every day as well. So from their own experiences, how are they interpreting what's going on um, through their own filters and lenses, their own mental models? So um, to be conscious of that and to be consciously trying to reduce fear, I think, is really important. And I don't think we'll ever eliminate it because um, our brains are wired to be alert for things that might harm us. I think we can train ourselves. And I know I've done a lot of work on myself in this sense to, well, I guess just be mindful of where our attention is and, and I guess what the quality of that attention and is it based on fear or is it based on something else? But it does take a bit of, yeah, intentionality. Yeah, yeah. And and leadership, really, you know, to have people around you who are also doing the same thing. It's a difficult thing to do on your own. Absolutely. And, you know, people come from other organisations. So they might be in this organisation and the organisation I was working with had won awards for its cultural mm. transformation. And you would walk through the organisation, there'd be Buddhist flags around it and the places where people could go and be quiet. And so it was, you know, they really did promote a work environment in which people could try, could attempt to be more mm. mindful. Um, there were, you know, one of the initiatives we set up in in my small passionate group was meditation sessions at lunchtime. Wow, that's um, great. Because one of the observations of the group was everyone's so busy they don't have time to think. So let's create some time oh. for them to not think but just, just to be. They can <laughs> see that and to value the, the role of meditation in that or even just reflective time to think. Yeah, wow. So, so the context is really important, I think. Secondly, um, I think that you need someone um, facilitating this, and my aim was to find some principles that would work for anyone, not a recipe mm -hmm. for change, but some principles that would work for I anyone. Love it. And um, I, I think the fact that my worldview was already informed by complexity living systems, however you want to describe mm -hmm. that paradigm. And I was consciously operating from that and I provoked quest I provoked people to think within my small passionate group to think from that framework and to question their own mental models, deeply held assumptions and beliefs. That was the source of the seeding of the emergent change. I didn't go in there with a plan of what they should look like. Um, I just went in with an intention that we were going to promote this shifting worldview in mm. some way. The second element about the facilitator or, you know, whoever's leading this, um, I think who they are and how they see the world is really important. And what that leads me to think of is you know, the, all the talk about, you know, you can hire for skills, but really hiring for fit is more important and that perhaps hiring for worldview would be you know, and values would be advice for people who are wanting to, to create an organization that, um, you know, they really need to bring in people who can, can hold the space, can think of things from a systems perspective and, and, and have an appreciation for complexity. Yeah, if you want to go straight there, I think, I think that may be true. I'll have to think about that. Yeah. Um, so the other elements in this little diagram envisioning was the process that I used and, um, that's actually a published article online if people want to go and have a look at the Yeah, I'd love to put a link to that in the show notes as well. But what I found from that was that um, we were able to liberate personal values and and this was very much within the um, small passionate group. So you know how often we approach change processes and we 
create a, um, a team of champions uh, who are out the front. They create the plan and then they roll it out. Um, my approach was very different. This was an invitation to people who might also be interested in sustainability and interested in how their organisation could become sustaining, whatever that meant to them. When And I didn't even define it. I just used that invitation in an, in an email and said, if you're passionate about this, come along and be part of this Fantastic. group. And, um, and we set this small group up. It had about 20 people to start with and about five to finish with after two years. But people just came from anywhere in the organisation because they were interested in this. We actually ended up, and what was most fascinating for me, was that there were no executives who were interested yeah. enough to come along. The CEO actually deliberately stayed away oh. from it. Um, and I created a feedback loop with the executive and the CEO. And it was within this small, passionate group that we talked about what might this look like, what might this mean for our organisation. And, and we all became incredibly frustrated at different times over the two years around no action coming out of this little group. In fact, we became invisible. Yeah. But what we did notice in hindsight was that they were having different conversations mm. Because of the conversations we were having in this small group, they developed greater confidence in their ideas. They developed greater confidence in each other. So when one of them actually challenged something in the senior management group, the rest of my small, passionate group members rallied in behind this person and they created a conversation um, that was very different because of the relationships that they had with each other. So um, I think Margaret Mead was right, never underestimate the power of a small passion. Mm. <laughs> Indeed, it's the only um, thing that ever has changed the world. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, um, and then through the research, I also discovered some threshold concepts. Threshold concepts are ideas that when you come into contact with them, you are never the mm. same again. Um, <laughs> some of the threshold concepts, I'm just trying to look up my little... Uh, so some of the th threshold concepts were just around the idea of mental models. Can we become aware of our own mental models? How can we ask questions to bring other people's mental models out into the light of day? They're deeply held assumptions and beliefs. Another one was around the idea of complexity and actually exploring the world of living systems and how they behave. And another one was around the, the term sustainability. What does it mm. actually mean? Because people um, had a very environmental focus on that in the beginning and then after two years they had a much more integrated, much broader idea of what sustainability meant to them. That included the culture of their organisation. And the last one was this idea of letting go to let come, which comes from um, many people would recognise it from the work of Sharma and mm. Theory U. That was a practice that this group really I knew that developed. Sounded familiar. Yeah, yeah. And the last little bit is around the conversations, and they weren't planned conversations. They were just conversations that came up in the shared context of being at work with other mm. people. That, there's so much there that I would love to explore more deeply and um, perhaps another time we'll have the opportunity to do that. And I'm going to make sure that there are links um, for people to be able to connect more to your work if they're in finding out more. Um, before we go, just a couple of um, final questions. What does leadership mean to you now that's different than earlier in your life? Um, I mean, the classic answer to that, I think, would be um, 
the shift from knowing to not knowing. But I think the other thing that I learned from this research is that it's not an individual capacity. It's actually a, co- a collective capacity. Oh, wow. I love that. You know, distributed leadership isn't just us all being individual and exercising our own leadership. I think it's actually a collective capacity that it's moving towards a shared mm. vision of some sort and genuinely shared, not shared because some leader has told them what it is, shared because it comes from their hearts. Wow, that's really powerful. I think that really speaks what I have been thinking for a really long time. <laughs> I think that's a bit of a, uh, what do you call it, a threshold concept for me? <laughs> it might be. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think so. And finally, if someone came to you with a change initiative or wanted to you know, write a book, do a thesis, start a business, but they were aware that there was both internal and external barriers, what advice would you have for them? I think um, what I've done has just been to follow what I'm interested in and um, to continue just following that learning path. I I think that's what it's about. You just follow what you're interested in. I mean, we use this word passion, but it's curiosity. It's um, it's what am I interested in enough to actually invest myself in and follow that path. A lot of us have been taught to not do that so and I guess that's one of the internal barriers we've internalized this I can't follow my passion because I can't make money at it or it's just not socially acceptable or or whatever so when people are are dealing with that kind of internal perceived external pressure to not pursue that and not follow what really lights them up what would you suggest that they examine why they think they can't do that it's just an assumption. Mm, I like that. So I'm not a rich person in a in a monetary sense. I have enough, um, but I've had a way of a time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners before we finish up? Uh, just thank you for listening and, and for an interest in what I've been talking about. I, I really appreciate it. Sometimes I feel like I might be the only person in the world interested oh, in it. Oh, definitely not. I've been waiting to have this conversation for... Which is a bit depressing, you know. Yeah, well, I've been, I've been watching uh, your, your progress and just what you've been sharing for years and I've been waiting to have this conversation for a very long time. So I'm really thrilled that we've finally been able to have it and we get to share it with the world. Thank you. I really, I really do appreciate your interest. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being with us and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. I love how she identifies values as already existing in people and that we don't need to impose values, that in fact it's detrimental and we wonder why it doesn't work. We can put to rest the idea that we have to, as she says, massage everyone into the company values. They already exist and it's about liberating them, enabling people to connect with them. She asks us to reframe how we think about managing people. It's our thinking about what's expected. And I'd add drawing on old traditional models of management and leading people that keep us stuck. She offers a refreshing alternative that just makes so much sense. So what are you taking to heart? Do you work in an environment where you're trusted or where you trust others? What can you do to bring a greater sense of trust to the environment? And what is your environment doing for making change initiatives work or fail? And what can we do to liberate the values of the people who dedicate so much of their lives to our workforce? 
And I really love that idea of threshold moments. Are there any threshold moments for you in this? She says that the cost of control is creativity, emergence, and the powerful natural forces of what human beings have to offer. If you want to find out more about Josie McLean, it's all in the show notes, and you can also find it on the website, tathrastreet.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for joining us and for being on this amazing journey called Top Hoppy. I just love having these conversations and I'm so glad to share them with you and to be joined by people from Sweden, Japan, Canada, Germany, Croatia, France, Trinidad and Tobago, because we are changing the face of leadership one conversation at a time, challenging how we lead in business, work and life. So once again, thank you. And feel free to connect to me on social media and feel free to sign up for my very infrequent newsletter, find out more about the Changemaker Project and find past and future episodes of Tall Poppy. We'll catch you on the flip side.